Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. And I'm Corey McLaughlin. I'm the editor of the Stansberry Digest. This week, Dan talks with David Cervantes, founder of Pinebrook Capital Management. And for our opening rant this week, I'm going to correct a mistake I made. We're going to talk a little bit about Kathy Wood. We're also going to talk about all the warnings I've been giving people for the past year or two. And we'll finish up with a little tidbit about the situation in the UK. No mailbag this week, but remember, you can email us at feedback at investorhour.com or call our listener feedback line 800-381-2357 to tell us what's on your mind. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. Okay, Corey, so you have to in- indulge me here. I-, I need to I need to fix a mistake. It was in a recent Stansberry Digest, and Dick, I misinterpreted the prospectus of the new ARK Venture Fund from the people at ARK Invest, run by the famous Kathy Wood. And I said that you couldn't get all your money out. Like most ARK Invest funds are just ETFs, right? So this ARK Venture thing is a totally different animal. It's called an interval fund, and you can only get your money out once a quarter. And I misread the prospectus and thought that there was an individual limit that you could only get 5% of your money out each quarter, but it's 5% of the total, and as long as everyone in the fund doesn't want to head for the exits, you can get 100%, probably most times. So, you know, mea culpa, made a mistake. You can probably get 100% of your money as long as everyone isn't headed for the exits. So I, I got that wrong. But I have to tell you, the more I thought about this, the more I thought, okay, well, I got it wrong technically, but I promise you, Corey, man, like the venture capital and private equity worlds, they mark their assets to whatever they can get away with, right? They're, they're not marked to the public market prices. Right. And I think what's going to happen, okay, is that Kathy Wood's going to pull in all this money and you can get into this ARC Venture Fund with as little as $500, okay? So everybody can get into this thing. And I think what's going to happen is that because you can sort of what they call delay and prey on writing down the assets, she'll get people into this thing, delay and prey with the asset write downs, keep them in as long as possible and collect how much a year? 4%. She estimates the funds and expenses at 4.22% annually. Uh, And the management fee alone is like 2.75. I'm like, whoa, you're going to take $500 and charge me 4% a year? I mean, people with $500, they shouldn't be charged 4% a year. It's just ridiculous. So I think she's luring in a lot of unsuspecting, naive people with small amounts of money, and she's going to put them into like the illiquid version of all the stuff in the ARC Innovation ETF that's down 76% or whatever it is this week. So yeah, I did make a mistake. Like I said, mea culpa, you know, I welcome all mistakes as opportunities to show you that I'm not hiding mistakes, right? They're, they're great opportunities, but man, I just think people are going to get bludgeoned when they finally start writing this stuff down. That's it. I mean, yeah, that reminds me, well, first off, good job, uh, mea culpa I've done the same thing myself once in a while, <laughs> um, yeah. but this reminds me of, not, it's not the exact same mechanism, but you know, about a month or two ago, weren't you talking about, uh, what was it, AMC mm. Entertainment doing something similar, kind of luring well, in these small, small investors? 
Yeah, I mean, there is like the luring aspect of it, you yeah. know, because the, all those apes, they call themselves, don't right. know what they're doing. But the mechanism is different. I'll tell you what it is like, though. It is just like, to me, Lehman Brothers, early 2008. They had what they call level one, level two, level three assets. Level one is marked to public market prices, public stocks, public bonds, whatever. You can't, you can't fake that one. Everybody sees that one. So you better market to where the market is, right? But level two, level three, I looked in early 2008. I was like, hmm, everything else is getting bludgeoned. Level one is marked down. And level two and three are like flat or up. What are the odds of that? And the exact same thing has happened recently. Blackstone reported their results, you know, private equity, and they reported their private credit last quarter was up 9%. Worst bond market in the history of everything. Worst credit market in the history of everything. But these guys made 9%. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, treasuries are down 33%. No, private credit up 9%. Yeah. Sure. Delay and pray, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely concerning. The the arc, I mean, I keep going back to that digest that you wrote in February of 21, which was, I believe, the day before, day after the, the uh, ETFs topped, yeah. pointing out the T-shirts, sweatshirts, baby onesies arc <laughs> was selling at the time. Um, yes. It's like... <laughs> These are so blatantly obvious <laughs> signs of the top in retrospect, but you were writing it at the time. So it's, you know, this is obviously a little bit different when you're talking about investment mechanisms, you know, luring people's yeah. money in that way. But it's the same thing as selling merchandise, really. I mean, it's it's yeah. uh, it's all signs of the same same uh, concerns. And, and the guy who wrote in and pointed out the mistake, he said I was doing the world a disservice. He was really slightly snide about it. He said I was smearing the whole asset class of interval funds. And not at all. I mean, I, I just think in this case, it's inappropriate. It's also inappropriate to like, uh, well, I won't go off of this. Let's just say it's inappropriate to lure people into an illiquid thing and charge them 4% a year. You don't charge people with only $500 4% a year. It's just not done. There, so there's that. But then there's the fact that it's the illiquid version of the thing they've already gotten killed in. It's like, wow. It's like a crowded theater that's already on fire and people are still coming in the door. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, yeah. On the other and, end of it, I, I just your four uh, percent comments have just reminded me you could probably get four percent interest on a two-year treasury uh, today. That's exactly I, right. More than that, so maybe maybe you can balance it out that way. You know, it's funny because <laughs> Arc lists the estimated fees expenses at four point two two percent, and I just checked quotes. I mean, the ten-year and thirty-year are flat. They're you know a basis point apart or something at this point. So on either one of those, you can get almost exactly your ARC fees and expenses back. So yeah, maybe that's the trade. You yeah, put your, put 500 in. Yeah, that's right. But that's the thing too. Like when I was a kid, I had a savings account that I had $5 in, not 500. And I'm pretty sure I was making like 5% or something. Like when people give you $500, you pay them 4%. You don't charge them 4%. You know, it's, uh, but hey, they're adults, right? They're making their own decisions. Whatever. Uh, got that off my chest anyway. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. And you've been, I mean, you've obviously been warning people about these sorts of 
anecdotes and instances and and, and you did that in a big way this week i know I, I was watching uh myself and even if i think even if people don't necessarily agree with what you, you think could happen i mm-hmm. think the warnings itself is useful to to hear in general to just basically see what's out there like wake up people i think you said wake the hell up um in your presentation on wednesday and you know i agree like you just in general you know we have to see what's going on out there and research these things for yourself and i don't know i i really think your message was was a welcome one uh i think it should be to a lot of people okay so right even if you don't think as i said you know that we've got 70 plus percent more downside you know if history is any guide and high likelihood of a decade or multi-decade sideways market coming our way you know disagree with that all you want to but we, we know the history and we reported a lot of good facts in that presentation i did i should say i was the only one there my, myself and my co-host amy you know i agree with you man you disagree all you want but hear me out because I believe it is like very obvious that this was the mega bubble of all mega bubbles. And if you agree with that, you tell me how we get out of this one better than we got out of any of the others, all of which ended the same way. Huge drawdown, decade plus sideways market after. I don't know. Yeah. And you, one of the things that I forgot about that you, you pointed out was, you know, at the late stages of a melt up is when a lot of the big gains are made, uh, the biggest gains you, you can make are made. And I didn't realize the last third of, uh, you know, a bear market or a meltdown is when a lot of the biggest losses can happen. And we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, like, have we reached that capitulation moment yet in this bubble popping? And, right. you know, it doesn't seem like we have yet. And, we're already down 20%. So, you know, if if we haven't seen that yet and we're down 20%, then what happens next? I mean, these are just things you have to think about, I think. Right. Just like at the beginning of the year when we were warning about, you know, the 60-40 portfolio is going to be in trouble because of the inflation situation, stocks, yeah. how expensive they were. And nobody was really, I didn't see many people talking about that. Um Right. And it's happened. It's it's the yeah. worst performance like ever. So uh for that portfolio. <laughs> so it's yeah. I don't know. My point is, um, I don't know, anyone who hasn't seen Dan's presentation should check it out. Um and just I, you know, the more information, even if you don't th- disagree with it, I think the more information you have in this environment and independent information, the better. Yeah, I would say uh, like independent, different sources and varied perspectives, right? Prepare yourself for a wide range of outcomes. And by definition, you know, (laughs) the outcome I'm talking about is pretty extreme. So if you can fill in with other outcomes in between that one and the very best one, that's a wide range of outcomes. And then you can make your own decision. And every day, it seems like every day there's a new insight that makes me just more concerned. Like I've been noticing, um, thanks to Michael Gaed, former podcast guest and a couple other folks on Twitter, like it seems to me like over the past, I don't know, maybe since August or July or so, it seems like the bond market is kind of calling BS on the stock market because the TLT, like the long-term treasury bond ETF, it keeps underperforming the 
S&P 500. So, you know, and these are treasury bonds. This is supposed to be the safest thing in the world. And it's debt. Like equity is the bottom piece of the capital stack in the world. Like, that's the risky piece. And it's outperforming the worst performance ever in the safe piece above it. <laughs> that right. yeah, feels no, weird. Yeah, no, I, that's something. I think you're spot on with the, the bond market. I think uh, the bond market hasn't been buying what the stock market has been selling as far, when, during those rallies. You know, in the summer when you had that kind of big bear market rally, which is more obvious to people in hindsight. But at the time, the bond market wasn't behaving any differently than it has all year. Um, right. And it still isn't. Even this last week or so, you know, rates are going compare, relatively through the roof compared to where they've been the last 15 years. Um, yeah. You know, people are excited over 4% interest again. And or if they've ever known it, you know, a lot of people have never known a era like that, which tells you a lot about the market we're in and a lot of people are not prepared for what could happen and have never been in a bubble like this before or or anything like that. And, you know, I'm thinking of like younger traders and, you know, the, the Robin Hood users of the world and that group. Yep. I mean, you wonder how many of these, how much of these rallies within the downtrend are because of that kind of behavior right. um, and just inexperience generally. Nobody's fault. You just don't. You're not prepared right. for it. Yeah. Right. Folks under 40, professionals, Wall Street professionals who have never seen this. Absolutely. And and who maybe have never seen a real crisis in their careers as investors, even if they lived through one as a child or something, but never been alive during bad inflation. That's yeah. the one. They have no reference point whatsoever. Ugh. It's a bad time to be to be young, to be a young investor, or or maybe a good one because then you'll have the rest of your life to recover. I don't know. <laughs> Just take yeah, it either way. Yeah, if you have the really long term, you're you're, you're uh, yeah, you're good. Yeah, that's right. You will be a long term investor whether you like it or not, right? <laughs> yeah, you'll either be so. very short term or or <laughs> or if you're stick with it. Yeah, you're right. It it could be a a good thing for the the youngest. Yeah. So speaking of like safe debt instruments that, you know, kind of blew up a little bit recently, let's turn to the UK now, because that was a really, really, it's been an interesting, well, it was an interesting 44 days for Liz Truss, the prime minister who recently resigned, um, who I think is technically still in office, but she'll be out as soon as they pick a new one. And there, there was a little timeline in the Wall Street Journal. I was like, wow, that, that really sort of, um, went bad in a hurry. I mean, that escalated as soon quickly. as, um, her, yeah, that escalated quickly. The bank of England, um, raised interest rates, raised what they call their bank rate by, um, half a percentage point to like two and a quarter percent. Okay, fine. Everybody's doing that. 23rd, the chancellor, um, quasi Quartin comes out and announces a plan that like they were, Liz Truss was elected to do this. And the main features of what he announced were tax cuts and energy subsidies, which everybody should have known was going to happen. But the bond market hated it. The British pound hated it and sold off. And then because it sold off, the pension funds hedges got creamed. So they had to sell British bonds so that that made the bond route even worse. 
And I just don't get it because she was elected to do this stuff and she did what she was elected to do. It should have been in the market. Everyone should have known. It makes me wonder, like, there must be something worse underneath that really caused this. But I, I was I was shocked that the market was so shocked. Put it that way. I think you're probably right that there's something more to it underneath based on the, the couple of <laughs> stories I was reading about just what's gone on in the in the parliament there the last couple of days. Um you know, obviously for a prime minister to resign, to lose support of her own party in 45 days and um, is not, is, is actually unprecedented. It's never happened before. She's going to be the shortest uh, serving UK prime minister ever. Wow. That said, there are a few interesting things about this. One, of course, this whole thing revealed the leverage of these pension funds to begin with, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, trust. I wrote this yesterday or this week in the digest was she is eligible for about a $130,000 equivalent, like <laughs> essentially pension fund for being a former prime minister in the UK, which is insane. Like these things that happen. Awkward. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, and it's supposed to be, obviously that's put in place. It was put in place, this, you know, this funding, you know, post post-term for so you can carry out public duties as like a former prime minister. But obviously that was not, I don't think anybody wants her carrying out uh, duties as a former prime minister. So it's, I mean, this is the stuff that just happens in these situations. Mm -hmm. Like you see just how absurd things turn out. It also, you know, maybe in a different economic environment where inflation wasn't such a big of an issue, yeah, you know, she'd still be the prime minister. You know, you could cut taxes, you know, easier and nobody's going to be. And of course, the war is going on in a different situation. She could do these things, but it shows you just how the economy, uh, the global economy can affect politics directly. Right. And then, of course, you know, the Bank of England is coming in and intervening and and trying other moves to basically support the currency, support the bond market. And then that has ripples around the world. And you can see guys posting charts on Twitter um, of like the yen was the one I saw earlier. You know, it was like really a really over a short period of time, just practically a look like a crash, basically. And the question was, mm, is this the Bank of England screwing up my yen trade here? So the ripples, right? The ripples around the world, when you start messing with sovereign bond markets and currency markets, that's maybe like the next thing that I'm just going to go on ranting and raving about for the next several months as I have been about stocks and bonds, especially stocks for over, you know, almost two years now, because I don't think folks understand, like we had Brent Johnson on and, you know, he's got his theory and it, it really holds water. Like yields are spiking all around the world because countries, they have to service dollar debts. They have to sell their own currency to get dollars to service the debts. I mean, and eventually I think the dollar just goes to the moon and then our government has to intervene and weaken it on purpose. And that's when you better be hanging on to some gold, I think. I agree with you there. Uh, Totally. Yeah. What's going on with currencies today? A lot of people don't you know, frankly, just don't even pay attention to them. You know, you think, you know, more of a casual investors um, right. don't really see the influence of it. But if you look at the trends this year, the the obvious trends were stocks down, bonds down, dollar up. 
Like that's mm -hmm. pretty much <laughs> what's been going on. And you see the how this is affecting the rest of the world. Like like the we talked about the UN warning, uh, which mm -hmm. you know we weren't fans of, but it's what they're saying is true. Um, as far as what a stronger dollar is doing just to the global economy, you know, you're probably you're not making mm -hmm. any friends uh, either <laughs> around the world right. uh, with with the, the dollar leading the way, but. You know, I've, I've said this before, like it's uh, it's our fiat manipulated currency. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's that. So the U.S. is in a good position overall uh, from that perspective. But you're right. Yeah. When For, things turn around, you know, you're going to want to be prepared and uh, yeah. gold obviously should benefit from that. Yeah, it's funny. You started off by saying people don't even think about this. Seven trillion a day in currency trading. It dwarfs everything. Right. We had George Gilder on the program. He called it the hypertrophy of finance, and, and I couldn't agree more. Finance has like taken over everything. Everything's been financialized to death, mm -hmm. and and yet like nobody thinks about it. Nobody knows about it. You hardly ever see like the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times and all that. Stocks and bonds, stocks and bonds, stocks and bonds. That that's it. That's all you see. Right. Um, over the last couple of years, <laughs> I've I've started to think about how. You should really pay attention or try to pay attention more to the closer you get to the central banks and the people who are creating the money or, or you know, pulling the levers on that. Make sure you you know what's going on there first before you get into, you know, tiny stock picking because yeah. it's, you could have the greatest stock in the world or company in the world, but if it's in a bad environment that doesn't help it at all, it's, it's going to be hard. Right. And for a long time, this was a concern about emerging markets only. Like you never worried about the U.S. or developed economies like this, right? You worried about emerging markets. You're like, is the government going to change? Is the currency going to tank? <laughs> you know, are they going to initiate whatever, you know, currency controls throw, you know, are they going to kill the prime minister? <laughs> you know, what's going on in this little country? Can I put money there? Because the stock market's so cheap or something, whatever your thesis. And you got to ask those questions about those markets. But people this is another thing that like nobody in our lifetime really gets about the united states asking questions about you know currency and you know bond the u.s treasury market <laughs> well it's down 30 percent. so worst performance since the 1780s so i'm just saying maybe yes this time i wonder how many people we've already turned off with this this conversation about bonds and uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, currencies yeah you know, um, the turning off is a good thing, I guess, to a degree, but hopefully we turn them on to find out more, right? Right. That is what, that is the business we are in, turning you on to find out more. Maybe that'll be our new tagline. Yeah. Save that one somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we've done it again, Corey. We've, we've started out sounding like two guys who just want to talk about stuff and ended up talking about the end of the world. Practically. We just, we keep coming back here and we keep agreeing too much. We got to find something we disagree on. One of yeah. us needs to be an optimist about something. All right. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. Moving yeah, ahead. It's gotta be you. <laughs> All right. I, I, I can't wait for you guys to hear our conversation with um, David Cervantes. He's a really smart guy. He's never done a podcast before, so I feel really lucky that we're the first one to get him. You are you get a pencil, get a pad, get a piece of paper, take notes. He's going to throw a lot of data at you, but I want you to listen to the way this person's mind works. 
It's awesome. That's why we wanted to have him on the show. So uh, without further ado, let's, let's talk to David Cervantes. Let's do it right now. Wake up, Stansberry Investor Hour listeners, because a major market event is right around the corner, which will take most Americans by surprise and likely ruin millions of retirements. I'm stepping forward to expose exactly what's about to happen and how it could change everything you know about investing. You might not know this, but I'm the longest tenured analyst at Stansberry Research. And over my 20 plus years at the firm, I called the Lehman Brothers collapse five months in advance, the Bitcoin crash, even the top of the NASDAQ last November to the day. But what I'll be sharing with you is by far my biggest and scariest prediction ever. In short, what I think is about to happen has the potential to destroy everything you spent your life working for and will require a totally different investing approach going forward. To find out more, go to www.danmarketprediction.com. Again, that's www.danmarketprediction.com. Oh, and just for tuning in, I'll give you the names of two well-known stocks you've definitely heard of and might even be holding, which I think you need to sell immediately. These are two of the most popular widely held stocks in America right now. So there's a really good chance you really do own at least one of them. And if you do, I think you need to get out immediately. To get the names of those companies, again, sign up for my free event by going to www.danmarketprediction.com. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that we got you on. Um, it's funny, David, we were um, interviewing another guest and he apologized at the end for only talking about trading and for not talking about, you know, the Fed and inflation and interest rates and all kinds of things. And I didn't say this to him, but I wanted to say, no worries. I have a guy for all that. <laughs> and I was thinking of you. <laughs> so, you know, we maybe the first question I should really ask just to, you know, give our listeners a sense of who you are and what you're about. I, I normally like start out with asset managers and I say, Hey, if we were in a bar and we just met and the conversation turned to finance and you said, Hey, I'm in finance. And I said, what kind of an investor are you? What would you reply? Yeah. So I'd say I'm a private investor. I don't run uh, outside money. I don't have uh, a committee of people I'm reporting to or um or anything like that. So I'm a private investor. Uh, my background is uh, I started in the business on uh, the emerging market fixed income side back in the mid 90s. Actually, I, I came right during the vortex of the Russian ruble crisis in 1998, and it was um, it was trial by fire uh, at that time. Dot com uh, was just getting really on fire. Uh, I was a young kid, recently out of college. I didn't know lick about bonds, but I spoke Spanish. And they said, you know, can you pick up a phone and speak? I said, sure. And <laughs> I had a job. <laughs> nice. That's great. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was a, what's called, they call it now a, a flow trader, but I was a sales trader uh, for the JP Morgan Private Bank. Um, then I went to UBS and joined a team there. And it was called a uh, middle market institutional sales role. So we were covering um, 
on the offshore side, um, small, mid-sized banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, uh, a couple of ultra high net worth individuals, but um, the, the role was institutional in nature. Then I went back to uh, grad school, got my MBA at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a uh, stopover in uh, Singapore at, at NUS, National University of Singapore, for some uh, graduate work there. Then I went back to the same team. Ultimately, we moved to Morgan Stanley, and I started focusing on Latin America. So I, as a salesperson, I spent uh, a lot of time, about a quarter of my time, in South America, pretty much the whole uh, the whole continent, um, which was fine when you're a you know younger person with no family. But right around then, I, I got married and started having kids, and uh, the job just became inco- uh, incompatible with uh, with. I'm oh, sorry, the family situation became incompatible with the the, the, the job lifestyle. Mm, I see. So I know you, just for our listeners' sake, I know David as one of those smart macro guys on Twitter, and that's why I invite him, him on the show because um, this is how I, I don't know how else to put it. It's simple minded sounding, but it's a big macro moment, I feel like. Um, you know, macro, and actually, macro and lots of, you know, sort of active strategies and things really got ignored. You know, I'm a value investor myself or have been. And, uh, you know, we were all getting ignored for a long time. And it's, these are like the topics that don't matter until they're all that ma- matters. And I feel like macro is one of those topics. Um, so the real reason that I got you on here today is just maybe to let us know what your outlook is. Um, let us know, like, what you focus on as an investor. And, um, you know, where you think all this is going. Markets are have been bludgeoned. The bond market's been bludgeoned. Inflation has ticked up. If you, you know, if the CPI numbers mean anything to you, mortgage rates are suddenly 7%. I mean, this to me is like, I feel like all of a sudden we are on another planet versus a year ago. But I really want to talk to you and see what you think. Well, uh, again, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's, it's, as you said, it's a big macro moment. And I, I think the big question is, is this bear market secular or cyclical? You know, as you know, in, in a cyclical bear market, you know, stocks will recover their losses in a year or two and continue on the on a growth trajectory that generates, you know, real positive um, inflation-adjusted returns over time. And, you know, they might be painful, but that's part of the growth process versus a secular bear market. Stocks and other financial assets uh, generate negative real returns over time. And a secular bear market tends to be associated with an economic environment characterized by secular stagnation or stagflation in which real economic growth is low or even negative for long stretches of time. So think of you know, the Japan syndrome, lost decades of economic growth and output, living standards stagnating or even declining. Um, and, and, you know, it, it sounds kind of abstract, but these are real real consequences, real issues. Um, yeah. you know, there's a whole spectrum of life choices that revolve around this. Everything from household formation, birth rates, homeownership, educational funding, re- retirement. Th- these all suddenly become front and center as we try to determine, you know, where this is going, because it, it really does have an impact on not just your investment, but on your life choices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lost decades can also impact, you know, on a broader level, social stability, it can lead to political upheaval. Um, politicians will use policy leverage to deal with a shrinking economic pie. And that's, that's just never 
that's always a painful adjustment. Um, and then, you know, finally, for the U.S. in particular, as um, a, a secular stagnation of lost decades really puts things like, you know, the dollar as reserve currency of the world, uh, puts that at risk. And along with the rules-based order that the dollar underwrites and enforces with military muscle, you know, that's just kind of thinking broadly about macro and what this question of a secular or cyclical bear market means. So that's kind of, you're absolutely right. It's a big question, and this is where we are. Um, unlike other, um, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I was going to say, uh, unlike other uh, bear markets, but you know, every 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 bear market is really something that, that the Fed does and takes out, shoots the economy in the head by by lifting by lifting rates. In that regard, this is is no different. The Fed's lifting its policy rate to levels we haven't seen since two thousand five. So that's seventeen years ago, which is a long time. A lot, a lot of investors, a lot of careers haven't seen this kind of rising rate environment. And just to you know, some listeners. Um, you know, just to put some context to this, I'm, I'm very big on context. I, th- I think without context, it's, it's hard to have a real meaningful understanding. So during the pandemic, GDP collapsed by an annualized rate of over 30%. I mean, that's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, 22 million jobs were lost in the first two months of the crisis. Mm. Unemployment went from a 50-year low of 3.5 in February 2020 to a post-war peak of almost 15% by April 2020. I mean, this is, we're talking depression era levels of, of change compressed in two months. And the Fed and, Paul, and also uh, the uh, fiscal policymakers as well, um, they got a whiff of this during the global financial crisis, but that was really a kind of a banking crisis. And, and Ben Bernanke put on his depression hat and threw the kitchen sink at the problem. And I think this really was different in, in the scale of unemployment and collapse in GDP. I think both sides of the policy spectrum, fiscal and monetary, came in and just, they went nuclear here, and they threw the kitchen sink at the problem. Over the course of 2020-21, Congress passed three separate fiscal packages totaling $5.8 trillion. It's about 28% of U, uh, U.S. GDP. Wow. Uh, and the Federal Reserve was equally aggressive, you know, deploying its, its conventional arsenal of tools, such as cutting the policy rate, uh, QE, uh, using its statutory authority to calibrate regulatory and supervisory practices to support the flow of credit to households and businesses. So who am I to judge? Was this right or wrong? I, I don't know. But I think they saw a problem and they did the best they could and attacked it. Now, what we're looking at here with the inflation is the, the, collateral, the collateral consequence of that. And it's, it's front and center with inflation, CPI, and core. We haven't seen these kinds of numbers in in, in forty years. Uh, core is at around, gosh, about six and I, I can't remember offhand. Um, it's about six and three quarters, roughly. Um, headlines have touched nine percent. It's come down a little bit, mm-hmm. but th- these are inflation numbers we haven't seen since the early eighties, and this is why it's it's a big deal uh, because I think a lot of investors. Even if they didn't experience this kind of inflation due to just their, their age, it's a narrative that we grew up with. It's a story we grew up with that inflation caused a lost decade in the United States, the 70s. We had stagflation, um, gas shortages. We had mortgage rates in the high teens. And I think there's a real and I think legitimate fear of, of that repeating again. So that's, that's where we are, I, yeah. I think. We're wondering, okay, great, where, where, where do we go with this? And that, that's kind of the background for that. Right. That fear of repeating, 
I feel very strongly that that is one of the primary motivations behind the pretty aggressive stance that Jerome Powell has taken. You know, he's like, I, I remember there was this one moment, at, I think it was the last press conference, and the first question was something like, how do you see the end of this? You know, when do we stop hiking rates and all of that? And his answer to me amounted to, get that out of your head. We're not anywhere near there. And I, I heard that fear of repeating the 70s. I mean, that's a real fear for the reasons I mentioned. Um, it affects people. It affects the economy at large. And it, it affects us globally and by extension the world since we are on a, on a U.S. dollar standard. But moving on, I just want, I want to go back to the historical inflation. You know, we've had high inflation before, mm-hmm. but I think what really is different this time is the volatility of inflation, the um, second order effects of inflation. You know, in the, in the 70s, this thing played out for over a decade. And we're seeing this play out similar to how the crisis compressed depression era levels of panic into two months. We're seeing inflationary pressures compressed in a short time frame. Um, and the way I measure or the way I have a look at, I, I, I get a feel for the volatility of inflation. It's just it's simple. Just look at the standard deviation of inflation. Back, back in the 90s, the standard deviation of inflation was um, annualized 0.99% a year. Then through 2009, that became 0.37. And then the decade after the financial crisis, 2010 through 2019, that became 0.35. So we had three decades of not just disinflationary pressures, but three decades of lower volatility within inflation and inflation expectations. In 2020, that number jumped up to 1.23% on the standard deviation. Wow. 21, that that just went parabolic to 4.71. We didn't even see that in the 70s. In, in the 70s, 70 through 79, the standard deviation of inflation was 2.15%. So we're looking at, you know, double the, vol- the volatility of inflation from the 70s in wow. the span of one year. Wow. And, and that's, I think, what terrifies people. It's, you know, Dom Rumsfeld, you know, his old, his old quip, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. And, and I think that kind of volatility puts people on alert for the unknown unknowns and the second-order effects and third-order effects of inflation. You know, markets can price inflation. Market changes in prices, that's fine. They'll, they'll, deal, they'll deal with it, they'll discount it. What they have trouble with is uncertainty. And that second-order effect of inflation volatility is what has markets really off kilter right now. Just to mention, that number has come down. We're at, uh, so far, year-to-date, at around 0.86% volatile, um, standard deviation. So it's come down quite a bit. It was I, I could say 21 was a, a very spiky outlier, but that's where we are. It's not a fun place. Uh, it's not. And again, going back to you know the, the ramifications of this, financial assets don't do well with uncertainty. They don't do well with an uncertain inflationary path. Uh, we saw PE multiples back in the 70s just get annihilated to the single digits. Yeah. And then once disinflation kicked in, once the volatility of inflation kicked in, PE multiples expanded. I mean, they, they got a little crazy during the uh, dot-com in the mid-40s, and they've obviously since come down. But you know that just gives you uh, an idea of the impact 
of the volatility of inflation on asset prices. It's a very direct impact. So David, I have to ask, it seems like a lot of people want to say inflation is peaking. They want to keep saying it and keep saying it. And it keeps not quite being true. You don't sound like you're in that camp, but you can speak for yourself. You know, let's let's take a step back and disaggregate, you know, the big moves in the 10-year, mm-hmm. right? We've seen yields, you know, go up. And I like, I like to use a model that the New York Fed uses. It's called the ACM uh, term structure model. And that, that helps break things out uh, between not just real rates, but also uh, treasury risk premiums. And then from there, we can calculate you know, a real risk-free neutral rate, which is kind of a pure rate that takes out risk premiums. And that gives us a better profile of what's happening. Um, what's interesting is that this move in nominals is hands down being driven by the move in the real rate. The Fed does not control real rates. They control nominal rates. They control the policy rate. And the market, the market sets long rates. The, the Fed controls the short overnight rate, policy rate. But reels have been on a tear. Reels have been, you know, pre-COVID, they spent a lot of time, a lot of the post-financial crisis time period in negative tor- territory. And now they have moved, um, looking at my graph here, easily 200 basis points from the bottom of the COVID crisis to now. That, that's a big move. That's a very, very big move. In a short time. In a short time. But getting back to, to the inflation question, um, so there's a few different ways to look at it. Um, you know, Michigan inflation survey expectations, they actually peaked uh, right around April. Uh, they've come down. I think they peaked around 5, 5.4-ish. Mm-hmm. They are now at, um, you know, roughly at a mid-four handle. So they've, they've come down. And then if we look at, um, you know, break-evens, let me get my um, – other spreadsheet open one second. So break evens peaked uh, right around April twenty eighth at a three handle. They are now at two point four or two point five. So maybe tell um, our listener what break evens are. There they might not know that term. Yeah. So so the break even is basically. I mean, there's a few ways to define it, but the the simple rule of thumb is the nominal yield at which you would have to be paid to adjust for inflation and break even. I mean, I can get into more, more mathematical definitions of that, but that's effectively what it is. It's, yeah. uh, and then you also have five-year, five-year forward, forward inflation expectations, which is what do investors expect inflation to be in 10 years, five years from now? In other words, fast forward to five years, what do you, investors five years from today will think Inflation will be five years after that. Right. And that's actually a common um, metric the Fed follows. Uh, five-year forward inflation expectations have, have also come down. Those peaked around also around mid-April, uh, 2.67 roughly, now roughly 2.3. So market-based indicators are suggesting we've hit peak inflation. It's priced in. And um, so do, as well, along with uh, consumer-based survey um, measures as well. Mm -hmm. I posted a few items on Twitter. Uh, Looks like I think what's driving inflation or our view of inflation is what's called owner's equivalent rent. So basically, you know, the the, the Fed has this, or I'm sorry, I believe it's the BLS, but they they have a wonky 
definition of shelter cost. Um, and it's rents for renters, um, housing shelter for owners, and some combination of everything else. And it's kind of, it's called owner's equivalent rent. Owner's equivalent rent is uh, typically lags uh, house sale prices by about 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. House sales prices peaked back in July of 2021. Uh, they've since obviously come down with the increase in mortgage rates. Um, owner's equivalent rent will lag that. And the reason is rent, rental contracts and shelter contracts are, are, are fixed in nature. So you lock in a, a, a rate to pay rent or shelter. Mm-hmm. At a, you know, if, you're, if you're a renter, it's typically a year or two at a time. If you're a homeowner, obviously, it's different. But that measure is still climbing, kind of an echo lag of the run-up in home prices after the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. That OER, owner's equivalent rent, is about 40% of core inflation. Mm. So that is really what's driving core inflation, which by extension drives um, headline inflation. But I expect that number to start flattening out in about three to four months. In about three to four months, uh, owner's equivalent rent will start taking into account the decrease in home prices that started in July of 2021. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying that um, just to know, well, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's, 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 a, it's a lot. And if, and if we were at a bar hanging out, your head would be spinning and you'd say, my God, it's just too much. But let's, yeah. let's, 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 let's not get so granular. Let's zoom out a little bit. Where, where are we now? So here's, I, I track, um, a series of, of real economic cycle indicators, long leading indicators, the short indicators, and the coincident. So, 14 long leading indicators I track 10 are negative, three are positive, one is neutral. Mm. Of 14 short leading indicators, six are negative, five are neutral, three are positive. And on the coincident side, meaning what's happening today, it's kind of a mixed bag six are neutral, five are negative. So, my view on, on today is I don't think we're in a recession. Expected inflation appears to have peaked. Uh, the economy is clearly slowing. You know, the, the, of the four metrics that the uh, NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, they are the uh, official business cycle daters. They look at income, production, consumption, and employment. Employment is doing okay. It's slowing down, but as we see every month, uh, it's still employment is still strong. So we, we can't have a recession with that kind of employment. Uh, production, yesterday we got industrial, uh, industrial production, which I call the, the Mac Daddy of coincident indicators, and that, that hit an all-time high. So with the production and employment side of the economy are still pretty strong. The, the income side and the consumption side are lagging. The, the and, uh, real aggregate earnings are declining. When I say real, I mean uh, inflation adjusted. And on the consumption side, real retail sales are also declining. Um, they've been declining since around April this year. So I don't think we're in a recession right now. But at the pace that the Fed is tightening and what's happening in the housing market, I think it's, it's, it's pretty much a near certainty we will be in a recession, likely in the first half of next year. Okay. So it sounds to me, you know, I heard when you were going through your indicators 
and then what you just told me about a recession, um, I heard a lot of negatives <laughs> in those <laughs> indicators. I heard you say negative a lot, a lot more than you said positive or neutral. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the long-term picture, long-term, I mean, you know, next calendar year, it, it doesn't look good. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's an economy that's slowing, and policymakers are responding with the usual lags. Um, I, I think this goes to, you know, a little, little off topic here, but it, it goes to the nature of what the Federal Reserve is. I mean, we, we all know that they, they set the policy rate, but more fundamentally, what they are, is they're an agency of the government, right? So, so they, are, they are a part of the government apparatus. And like any government agency, they have political imperatives. They have, uh, obviously, their statutory objectives, uh, full employment and price stability, but they need to manage things, right? They need to manage optics. They need buy-in from, uh, first of all, from financial markets, but also from the population at large. And, and that adds another layer of complexity to their decision-making. It, it's not like these technocrats following formulas. I mean, they're, they're also got their finger on the p- political heartbeat of, of the economy. Yeah, right. And, so they, to me, that's a really complex set of inputs, and it makes their actions really kind of unpredictable. It, it does, you know, and after the stimulus that we discussed earlier was, was put in and we started seeing inflationary pressure start bubbling up, you know, the Fed said, oh, no, no, we're, we're fine. We're, we're going to use FAIT, I'm sorry, a- uh, average inflation targeting. Uh, we're going to let it run hot just so we can recover the jobs. And then once we do that, then we'll, we'll, we'll cool things down. Obviously, that didn't work, didn't work out as expected, but I, I think that sheds light on on this notion of that they're just technocrats. They're, they're not. They're, they're looking at, they're reading the tea leaves. They're looking at their statutory mandate. They're looking at what's happening, and they're kind of spitballing in the dark to a degree, trying to manage these different complexities. So you don't sound like an ardent Fed critic. You sound very understanding of the position they're in and the difficulty of the task that faces them. I wouldn't want the job, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, we wouldn't want the job. But, you know, some folks think the job shouldn't exist, right? Well, you know, reasonable people can disagree, but they they are here and neither I or you are getting them out. So Mm -hmm. it's not so much that I'm sympathetic or not. It's more of just a a part of reality that, you know, it's kind of like shouting at the moon. It's not going to make the moon go away. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm better off understanding the, the lunar cycle and what goes with it. Um, similarly with the Fed, I'm better off trying to understand what they're doing and how I can make money off that. It reminds me of that book, David, that was called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. The Fed is from the moon and, and the rest of us are on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there you go. There you go. So, so you know, the, the Fed, they're, they're a political institution. They're, they're, you know, they, look, no one's going to come out and say it, but, you know, they, they know the, the um, election. They're in tune with the election cycle. I'm not necessarily saying that they are um, partisan and biased. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. They're they're, they're human. Um, they're an institution run by people, but they're certainly aware of of the um, political cycle and the changes in fiscal policy that that might bring, and what their reaction function is going to be towards that. So, anyway, uh, getting back to the Fed being a political institution, 
they, they are held to somewhat of a political standard, right? They don't want to upset the public. They, and they also don't want to upset their oversight committees. And yeah, I think generally they, they mean well. So, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best they can. But they're, they're doing the best they can with limited information. They don't have a crystal ball. They have a reaction function. They react to things. They can forecast all they want through their blue in the face. But, you know, we all know those forecasts don't really mean a whole lot. Um, and that's why they focus on their reaction function. They, they need to react to the data um, and not be, right. it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, um, an institutional drawback. It's an institutional, it's, it's by design. It, it's kind of, they're kind of handicapped by design. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug, so to speak. I see. Yeah. Limited information and under extreme conditions. I mean, it's been decades and decades since some of these conditions were in place and having limited information is one thing, but having extreme conditions on top of it is just, you know. Sure. And, and, you know, now after they botched the, you know, average inflation targeting, after they botched that, you know, they got some egg on their face, right? Inflation blew up in their face. They said, no, we got under control. We, it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's transitory. And then it's, it's transitory. Then it's, tra- then it's not. Now you got the inflationary black hole of the seventies, you know, looking at you. Now you got inflation volatility, you know, going parabolic. And I, I think they are institutionally terrified of having this happen on their watch after they screwed up the first time. And I think that's driving, look, inflation is what it is and they have, they have to attack it. But I think there is a, an institutional bias towards going a little overboard because they already screwed up once and, it's, and they just don't want it to happen again on their watch. Not At least not Jerome Powell, right? He doesn't want to be. Right. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, going overboard, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because for a long time, it seemed like going overboard meant, you know, allowing, well, basically going overboard went in one direction. And now going overboard means fighting inflation at all costs. Whereas before going overboard, well, we're, we're much more worried about, um, you know, stimulating growth and keeping rates low. Now, the going overboard is the worry is in the opposite direction. I find that interesting. So I don't think a soft landing is in the cards for um, for the economy and the Fed. And, and the reason is the Fed is hiking pretty aggressively into a um, horrific hor- uh, housing market. You know, if you think about the term, you know, the, the housing cycle is the business cycle uh, that was coined by Ed Lemur back at a Jackson Hole um, at the Jackson Hole Symposium that the Fed organizes in uh, in Wyoming, he 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 pointed that out to uh, participants there that the housing market really drives the the economy. You know, the, the economists are looking at all the wrong indicators. The, the the business cycle is driven by the housing market, and the Fed is currently hike, hiking into you know market that has uh, mortgage purchase purchases at, at a six year low and refis at a twenty year low. Wow. I mean, we're we're just it's just not going to happen. Um, if the Fed wanted a soft landing, they'd have to do a hard pivot now, going into the, uh, November and pivot and say, look, we're not doing anything, or we're doing this, and because it's priced in, we don't want to let you guys down, and we're done, and we're going to wait. We're going to see how things pan out. We're going to see how, um, you know, we're, we're going to watch inflation. We're going to watch uh, owner's equivalent rent, see how that impacts core, see how that impacts headline, and see what happens with, with the rest of the, the, the business cycle. But they're not going to do that because they already screwed up average inflation targeting. They're, they're held to do this. 
out of institutional inertia. Wow. It's incredible to me, the disconnect. Like every time Pal talks, he points out the lag. He said monetary policy, the effects will lag and so forth. And yet at the same time, we are utterly committed to 2% CPI. I mean, there's a disconnect there for me. Which I don't even think we're going to get because what will happen, what I think will happen is the way things are going is if we have a hard landing, it's going to sneak up on them. And the inflationary echo, or I'm sorry, the disinflationary echo will be a lagging indicator. It'll, 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 it'll show up later. So they're going to get hit in the head with a, with a hard slowdown and they will have to start cutting rates. And that will be stimulative. And depending on, on the rate at which they cut, that could provide an inflationary impulse. So I don't think we're gonna we're headed towards an inflationary supernova. I do think that we're gonna settle higher than we were pre-pandemic. Right. Pre-pandemic and post-global uh, financial crisis. Meaning, after the financial crisis, the Fed could never hit their inflationary target. They're actually always under it. Yeah. And they could never hit their target. So, yeah, so I, I go ahead. So you know, one two ish before what three four ish. Afterward, is a that's you know hundred percent or more difference. That sounds pretty big to me. Um, Maybe if those numbers are okay. You know, I, I think the real the real risk is in the you know as a macro as a macro investor, it's the real risk is always lies in in what's priced in the growth and inflationary mix, mm-hmm. right? So if if growth is price high and it comes in below expectation, then that's a real problem. Mm. Did it with inflation. And that kind of leads me to my next topic, you know, in having this macro conversation about where are we going? What's priced? Where are we going? Um, David, I'm going to interrupt you real quick. I want the answer to this. Um, I, I want what you're about to say to be the answer to my final question, which is normally, if you could leave our listener with just one thought today, what is it? But you know, if it turns out to be five thoughts, that's cool. But <laughs> it sounds like you're headed to where where we've been going in this conversation and what listeners are interested in, like, what's next? So, David, what's next? <laughs> sure. Well, a quick a, a context, as, as I say. So, at the end of 2021, the equity risk premium was around four and a quarter. All right. The 10-year treasury was one and a half. So, you had a, a, a total equity return of 5.75. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, treasuries are at 4% ballpark. The equity risk premium is at around 6%. And expected equity returns are now 10%, which, which means you know, it's a fancy way of saying things have gotten cheaper. In other words, there's more value, there's, there's more value there. Okay? Right? Now, the, the, big, the big question is inflation. And as I was saying, this issue with the growth and inflation mix. I'm looking at earnings What's pri- what, what earnings have been expected by the market, by, by analysts, mm-hmm. all right? So expected earnings in 2022, they, have, they haven't changed much. They've come down a tiny bit. And at, at the beginning of 2022, really at 223 and changed for the S&P. Now they're looking at 225. So they've actually, you know, gone up a tiny little bit, all right? Mm-hmm. But 22 is, a, 22 is a done story. We're, we're look, the market's looking at 2023 now. All right, earnings estimates have only come down by 60 basis points. At the beginning of 2022, 
2023 earnings were looking at 244.95 roughly. Now they're at 243.46. So the question you got to ask yourself as an investor is: Fine, the treasury market's done what it's done. Inflation could be leveling out, but earnings haven't budged. Mm. They haven't budged one bit. I mean, if you want to count 60 basis points a bit, but you know. So I guess as an investor, you ask yourself what's going to happen to earnings and what typically happens to earnings. Um, personally, you know, I, it, this is nonsensical to me. You don't have this kind of slowdown without a corresponding offset in your earnings. So if you were to adjust earnings, mark them down, say, 15%, leave bonds roughly where they are, leave infl- let inflation come down a little bit, um, the, the market is not looking good. Uh, it's looking roughly 3,500-ish in a, in a good scenario. And if you want to get aggressive and start cutting rates even more, uh, I'm sorry, up rates, um, earnings, and look, have, look at different scenarios between earnings and treasuries, you know, if you're lucky, it could be maybe low 4200s. If you're very unlucky, you're looking at 2400 and change. Wow. And that's what I want to leave, um, leave you off with is, is this, this whole inflationary vortex that we've experienced. It's filtered through the bond market. It's filtered through credit markets. I don't think it's filtered through the equity markets yet. Boom. Wow. David, thank you so much for being here, man. I hope listeners are as kind of fired up about everything they've just heard as I am. I was on the edge of my seat here listening to you go through everything. I really enjoyed it. I really did. Thanks for having me. I hope uh, it wasn't too much data. But what I probably should do is circulate some of this stuff so readers can have a, a look on Twitter and uh, judge for themselves if this stuff makes sense or not. Hey, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll send them to you. Um, what is your Twitter? That's uh, David at Pinebrook Cap. There David at Pinebrook Cap. All one word. All right. All right. Thanks again, man. I, I, I really me. appreciate you coming on. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Last year, when most investors were watching their stocks plummet, one Wall Street legend had an unfair advantage that was identifying winning stocks with massive upside, like Riot Blockchain before it shot up 10,090% in less than 12 months. Digital Turbine before it shot up 789% in eight months. Overstock.com before it shot up 1,050% in four months and more. Clients have paid as much as $5,000 per month to see this kind of research. But today, you can get a glimpse at his system, the Power Gauge, absolutely free. It's a new way to see which small stocks could soon be rated a buy across Wall Street and shoot up by using a secret so powerful CNBC's Jim Cramer once said, even he doesn't want to bet against it. This power gauge comes from the legendary Mark Chaikin. Mark's the creator of one of Wall Street's most popular indicators, a system that appears on every Bloomberg terminal in the world and is used by banks, hedge funds, and every major brokerage site. He spent 50 years on Wall Street, survived and thrived in nine bear markets, built three new indices for the NASDAQ where he once rang the opening bell. But today, Mark has turned his back on Wall Street and wants to show you how this unfair advantage works. Right now, you can get a free in-depth look at how his power gauge system works 
a way to type in any of 4,000 different tickers and see exactly where the stock is most likely to go next and in any type of market. Simply go to www.trypowergauge.com for your free look. Again, that's www.trypowergauge.com. I say wow a lot at the end of the interviews, but wow, I really want you to think about what you just heard. Did you hear just the mountain of data that this guy sifts through his brain? Like, he really wants to get it right. He really wants to be careful. And he's not like like me. I sort of let emotions and politics and things filter through my head. But he is so focused on, like, you heard the discussion about the Fed. He's like, well, you know, we're not going to get rid of them. So I, they're, they're doing the job that they're doing. And I, and I take it as it is. Right. He's he's really focused on assessing things exactly as they are. And that's hard to do. And did you hear the number of of indicators that he was talking about when he said, you know, 10 are negative, three are neutral, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, there must have been 30 of them. And he's constantly watching those 30 things in addition to everything else that he was talking about. I thought the discussion about housing was particularly interesting. Um, I've tended to say that housing is like the number one leading indicator, economic indicator. And it sounded like, you know, he was sort of in that camp. You know, he was quoting Ed Lemer saying that it, it drives the economy. It's extremely important. It is, it is the cycle. I really hope that you maybe listen to that again and take notes this time, or maybe we'll, maybe we'll, uh, yeah, maybe we'll take some notes and, and discuss um, David's points as things play out in the economy. Uh, we'll see. But there was a lot in there, and I hope that you can sort of encapsulate it for yourself and make some notes and keep an eye on this stuff. Great stuff. Great stuff. That's another interview, and that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com, click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down, click on the word transcript, and enjoy. If you like this episode and know anybody else who might like it, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at InvestorHour.com. And do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at InvestorHour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour. Have a guest you want us to interview? Drop us a note at feedback at investorhour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to investorhour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email feedback at investorhour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network. Opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the contributor and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stansberry Research, its parent company, or affiliates. 
You should not treat any opinion expressed on this program as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion. Neither Stansbury Research nor its parent company or affiliates warrant the completeness or accuracy of the information expressed on this program, and it should not be relied upon as such. Stansbury Research, its affiliates and subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on the program. The statements and opinions expressed on this program are subject to change without notice. No part of the contributor's compensation from Stansbury Research is related to the specific opinions they express. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Stansbury Research does not guarantee any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this program. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this program may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as a recommendation that is appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this program. Before acting on information on the program, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.